You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Welcome back to another episode of the Vice Chancellor's Hour. Really enjoy doing this program with you guys, and I hope it's as much fun for you as it is for me. We're working through the book of Malachi, and what a blessing the book of Malachi is for us. I especially enjoyed last episode, we talked a little bit about the New Testament's use of the book of Malachi. What an absolute hope it is for us that the same God who speaks in the book of Malachi, who tells his people he loves them, tells them they have some pretty severe problems, problems that I think you and I could identify with. Nevertheless, that very God is going to come, came, in fact, in person to direct his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can see that the gospel writers believed that Malachi was talking about Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. I hope you catch that episode. If you didn't catch it, you can always go online vchour.buzzsprout.com or anywhere you get podcasts. Check it out there. We have all the information on the episode and you also be able to hear it anytime you want. Go back and listen again. Find out what I really said along the way. We're going to continue in the book of Malachi. Today, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. This is what the book of Malachi says. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that if will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. just want to start out with uh, the fact that this passage ties in quite neatly with the one before. You may remember we ended the last one discussing about why these people with all these problems who were lawbreakers, why they're not destroyed. And the thing that we emphasized so much was that the biblical position on this is it's because of the nature of who God is that God is a God who doesn't change. And when he sets himself for a people, he accomplishes what he sets out to do. We've discussed this in a previous episode in the form of covenant, that God is a covenant-keeping God. And the basic structure of the Bible does center around God's interaction with people through the form of covenant. He made covenant with Adam. He made covenant with Noah. He made covenant with Abraham. There's a Mosaic covenant, a Davidic covenant, for instance and a new covenant. And all of these are for the benefit of God's people. It's God making that covenant with us, not the other way around, and God telling us the terms, and then God even keeping the terms. Even though we break the terms of the covenant, well, God keeps the terms of the covenant. 
there's a little bit of the language which we didn't pick up here. One is this idea of the children of Jacob. I don't ever think about who the children of Jacob are, but Jacob in the Bible, while often used as a term for Israelites, well, it was a real man. I think you probably know that. And hopefully you know a little bit about him. One of the most famous stories about him is how he received his blessings. And he didn't do it through the right means, that's for sure. If you have this idea of the early patriarchs as being awesome guys who always did the right thing, well, I'm here to tell you that's not how it worked. That, in fact, these guys often did the wrong thing. Jacob took advantage of his brother in a weakened condition. That is, he found his brother, or his brother was hungry, and he manipulated his brother in order to take something from him. The second time, he actually impersonates his brother to trick his elderly father into giving him a blessing that wasn't intended for him. It was intended for his brother Esau. So the relationship between Jacob and Esau, between Jacob and his father Isaac, is not a good relationship. Not only that, but uh, Jacob isn't a particularly uh, brave person. When Esau threatens his life, Jacob doesn't stand his ground, and probably shouldn't have, but he ditches. He runs. He runs away. He goes and lives with his uncle far, far away. And this is behavior that probably saves his life, but makes you wonder what's going on in the life of Jacob. Not exactly a guy you would look up to. In fact, it's fair to say he doesn't really repent and turn to God until the very end of his trials. He says a lot of good things along the way. You may take, for instance, his proclamation at Bethel that if God will treat him well, he'll be God's man. But you can see there's conditionality in that, and the conditionality of it centers around God first acting in his benefit before he's willing to act to do what God would have him to do. And it's not really until the morning before he returns and meets Esau that you see anything like a very positive and God-centered response from Jacob. He often is looking for his own methods, his own way of winning. It's only on the back end that he's able to say it was actually God who was taking care of him all along. He calls the people who are receiving this the children of Jacob. So that's a bit of the story of who we're talking about here, and he's saying that's your dad in a sense. And then he says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Of course, your fathers would include Jacob. But it goes on in greater detail, perhaps for others as well, which the fathers would include Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the stiff-necked people of the Exodus. Now, I don't have enough time to illustrate to you all of the failures of following God that was found during the time of the Exodus, but I will name a few. They are living in the land of Egypt. Hopefully you remember this story. And God rescues them out of slavery, out of hundreds of years of slavery. God rescues them miraculously out of there. They are barely out of Egypt, barely out of the condition of slavery before they begin to complain that being slaves was better and they actually want to go back. That is, they didn't want their freedom if it came with the cost. That's some pretty severe grumbling. Not only that, but as God has revealed himself on a mountain to them, they make a false idol and they begin to worship it rather than worshiping the living God. Later on, there's a time where they complain that they're starving. It wasn't true. And God gives them food miraculously, and then they complain about the type of food that they're given. They're given so much, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted something different. In the midst of all this, they rebel against their leader, and they instigate a false type of worship, rejecting both the leader and the God who put that leader in place. 
And as soon as they start seeing pagan people along their path, they immediately start disobeying God and trying to intermarry with them, or worse, things that are explicitly told to them not to do. Then they reject God's promise of entrance into the promised land, and they do it totally out of fear of man. Having seen all of the things that God has already done for them, they nevertheless are afraid. What does all this culminate into? Really, it's uh, the failure of repentance, that these children of Jacob and these fathers from the olden days have turned aside from the statutes, have not kept them. And because God is a God who does not change, rather than simply destroying all of them, as would be his right, he instead says, return to me and I will return to you. Isn't that amazing? That's really a stunning thing for God to say. I don't know if you've ever thought about your relationship to other people, but when you've been really good to people and they don't deserve your goodness, and then they go and wrong you, the very natural human inclination in that circumstance is to look out for ourselves and to cut them off. The character of God is one in which, despite all of our transgressions against him, he nevertheless, because he doesn't change, continues to work in the life of his people for their good. It's fascinating. This passage, Return to Me and I'll Return to You, hearkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Let me take a moment. Let's look at that passage together as well. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 and following. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, well, that sounds like the day of Malachi, doesn't it? If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not long live in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. For from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come to you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers. He swore to them. This is the return to me and I will return to you. What does he tell them? He tells them, hey, there's going to be a time when you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. You're going to break God's law and he is going to scatter you to the nations. This is the time of the exile. And if you remember from the first episode in this series, we're now living in the time after the exile. God has brought some of these people back. But here they are, and they're once again not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And God says, return to me, and I will return to you. The promise is absolutely sure. As surely as their forefathers ended up in other countries, and in those other countries, they were under pressure to worship false gods, which is exactly what happened. They had no real country of their own, which is exactly what happened. Some of them returned to God, and God sent them back, just like he promised would happen. Here they are again, and God's reminding them again, this is the covenant with you. Return to me, I'll return to you. This isn't the only time it comes up. 1 Kings 8.33, Solomon promises almost exactly the same scenario. These people are going to turn their backs on God. They're going to get scattered. And then he says, they will turn back to God and confess his name. And When that happens, they're going to be restored. Echoed again, Jeremiah 15, 19, if you come back, I will take you back 
echoed in Zechariah 1.3, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, I'll return to you. It's not God who moved. He stood fixed. He was the one who stood in place. It's us that moved. I don't know what situation you find yourself in today, but if you're feeling like God is so very far away from you, let me give you this encouragement. It's not God who moved. The same God who was for you before is still for you today. This scripture makes it clear. It's you who moved, and yet you do not have to fear that if you return, it will be to a scowl, to a hard look, but instead it will be with open arms of gracious restoration, because that's exactly the God we serve. The very God who said before it happened, you are a weak people who will fall away, is the same God who says, and I'll welcome you back home. I don't know how you feel about that, but it so warms my heart to know that even in my moments of greatest weakness, I have a God who is ever ready to welcome me home because it's not him who moved to begin with. What's their evidence of a lack of repentance? They are, in fact, not repenting. That's what this whole section is about. They're not repenting as they ought. What's the evidence of that? Well, he has a very, very specific example. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So there's a little instance here about tithes and contributions. You have to think about what tithing means. It's not something Malachi made up. It's not something God introduced for the first time here in the book of Malachi. Tithing before Malachi is an extensive practice. If you've been listening to this for a while, you've learned about tithing already. It came up in some previous episodes of our tithing really means a tenth. That's what it literally means, a tenth part. And we find it as far back as Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek or Melchizedek after his victory. So we have this guy, Abraham. I think everybody knows Abraham. He's very famous. And he goes and he wins a great victory, a very, very difficult victory. And in that victory, when he returns with the spoils of war against these pagan kings, he encounters this king of Salem, Melchizedek or Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ. That is, he prefigures Christ. When you look at him, you're supposed to think he, in many ways, is like Christ. I don't think he's literally Christ. And you'd have to listen to the full episode on that to hear about why. Go back and listen to Melchizedek. We have a Be Less Bible character on him, and we have a Q&A on Melchizedek. He's quite the charismatic figure. But Melchizedek is meant to make us think of the Christ who is to come. And if you go to Hebrews, especially, for instance, Hebrews 7, it speaks so much of how Christ is a priest in the same way that Melchizedek was a priest. They were of the same type. He's in the same order. And because of that, that has some implications here. One is that Abraham is greater than Levi, and that's where the Levitical priesthood came. But Abraham actually submits to Melchizedek, which means all of the Levites aren't as good a priest as Melchizedek is. Melchizedek was the greater priest, and it's for that reason that Christ's priesthood is a greater priesthood as well. Now, Jacob is the first to promise God directly a tithe or a tenth. So what we find in Genesis 28, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God 
And this stone, which I set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. This is uh, Bethel. That's why it's called the house of God, Bethel, the house of God. And so we find in this, then, that there already is some idea of a tenth. And then, of course, you can think about how there's the Mosaic law. Leviticus 27 instructs that a tenth of produce and livestock would be paid. These represent the primary forms of wealth building during this era. Livestock and produce, that's exactly how people got wealthy. This is one type of offering of God, certainly not the only. But also two of the three years, it was to be shared with landless Levites and the priests. So instead of giving it for sacrifice, you give it for the Levites and the priests. And the third year is to be used for a charitable contribution to aliens and foreigners and to the poor, the destitute, those who don't and can't take care of themselves. And so ownership of the land that God had given these people was meant to be a type of stewardship. And the tithe was meant to worship God, but also to care for those who are without and most especially to remind us that we are merely stewards of God's blessing. Hopefully that's what you think of when you tithe. You think of yourself as being a steward of God's blessing. God's blessing you. You are a steward of it. That means you have a watch over it, and you should be using it wisely. That's also, by the way, why you should not use your charitable contributions foolishly. Be wise in the way that you use them. And in fact, in Nehemiah, which is around the time of the Restoration, Similar time frame as we find in Malachi, Nehemiah 13.10 specifically says that the people of the Restoration weren't tithing properly. And we see that kind of thing in the book of Haggai as well. It's just a theme from this Restoration. So a thing instituted in the past, not being implemented in the present, as it were. And it's not just that, but the New Testament talks about tithing as well. We find in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 13, some things that are quite similar to what Malachi has to say. Let's take a look at those together. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-13. The point is this, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel in Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. At first glance, it appears really to very closely mirror what Malachi says. The purpose of it is having all that you need, verse 8, that you may abound in every good work. And of course, the harvest of generosity, we're told, is a thanksgiving to God. Now, Jacob says, if you bless me, I'll give you a tenth. Paul says, we failed at giving God everything he deserves, yet God has graciously given us everything that we need therefore gives because so much has been given 
to you. God has given so much to us, and that's exactly why we ought to be giving so much to others. That's why it culminates in an actual expression of thanks. Paul here demonstrates the type of heart he says that the people of Corinthians should have. And by the way, this is exactly the kind of heart that God is demanding of us in the book of Malachi as well, a heart that expresses our thanksgiving because of our stewardship of the blessing. So that in the end, you see, the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same. The great blessings we receive in Christ Jesus are the very things that we're supposed to steward for that outside community. And so, as God is giving to us, we ought to give as well. What should our Christian disposition be? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 9, it should be one of thanksgiving and excitement, not saying how little can I give, but how much can I give. You ever ever thought about the words of the hymn, And Can It Be? Let me read those words for you. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I want to ask you a question. When you think about the work of God in the world, not in a general sense, but in a personal one, When you think of the work of God in the world, this God who says, you've done so many things wrong despite all of your blessings, but nevertheless, you return to me, I'll return to you. And he's made it good. He's purchased that gracious response and demonstrated that there's no good thing that he will withhold by not withholding his own son but giving his son to purchase a ransom for us. Not that we could just be okay, not that we could just be treated as neutral, but instead so that we could be called sons and daughters of this very great king, a king we didn't treat well, one that we disobeyed at best and neglected in so many good things with hearts full of rebellion. And yet, This is the very God who sent the Son to die for us, and he says, return to me, and I will return to you. We are the prodigal son, finding the Father along the way, with arms open wide, ready to receive us. And now turn your heart and mind to say, what then will you hold for yourself and say, this is too much for me to return to the work of God? When you see that every good thing you have Not only is it a gift from God, but it's a gift from God to people who don't deserve it. There's no way you can hold on to it selfishly as though it's only yours and no one else. My prayer for you today is that you would grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory now and for all eternity. Amen. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993-FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.